Thanks, everybody. Thanks again for having me. Let me pray as we come to God's word. Um, Our Father, you uh, are the light that gives us strength and guidance. Um, You provide truth um, through your word. And we pray, Father, that this morning you would speak the truth to our hearts, that we'd receive it, that we'd have hearts that would be open for you to speak to us. Um, This is an ancient text, but a text that's as relevant for us today as it was for the people in Isaiah's times. And we pray, Father, that we would receive it and put things into practice from it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, it was 3.30am on March 4, 2017. I was lying in a hospital bed and I wrote this in my journal. I'm grateful, God, for your many blessings, getting into hospital, removal of my cancer, wonderful care, prayers of brothers and sisters. Please, Lord, would you give me the courage and strength to radically give my life to Jesus? Would my old life be truly crucified? Would I grasp the pain, the suffering of the cross, yet also the mercy and unending love? Would I endure and receive in a new and marvellous way? Uh, I'd been a committed Christian for 15 years, but so often when we face a crisis, an illness, a death, uh, maybe just even getting older as I'm experiencing these days, uh, we recognise the lack of security we have in things. They don't seem to be as important anymore and our attention turns to, the ter- to eternal things, things that really matter, things that are about God. And so it was a time of crisis for Isaiah at the beginning here of chapter 6. Uh, there in verse 1, King Uzziah had died. The people of Judah, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, had become completely self-absorbed. They might have believed in the concept of God, but their behaviour and their priorities and their values uh, no longer included God. If you like, the prosperity that they'd actually experienced had sadly afflicted them with a contempt of God. Um, but the prophet's words, of Isaiah, prophets, but Isaiah's words, the prophet, had been very clear from the very start. In chapter 1, he, he, he writes this, Hear me, you heavens, listen earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they've rebelled against me. And then in chapter 2, we get a little bit more detail of what that rebellion looked like. They are full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines and embrace pagan customs. Their land is full of silver and gold. There is no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses. There is no end to their chariots. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. And so the question is, who would save them? The one they'd hoped would save them was King Uzziah. And he's initially, he was a good man. He'd done what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He'd won battles. He'd built towns. Uh, The the people were enjoying prosperity. His fame had spread far and wide. 
But sadly, with that power and with that fame had come unfaithfulness and shame. You can read about it in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. And now he's dead. And the threat and the power of the Assyrians was mounting against them. It's crisis time in Judah. And there in chapter, in chapter 6, uh, verse 1, Isaiah sees the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. Isaiah sees God. He has this mind-shattering, vivid vision of God seated on his throne. Just imagine for a few seconds to, to grasp what that must have been like. Actually seeing God. It's better than any front row seat at a, at a concert. Uh, Isaiah saw God, saw God in his majesty, in his glory and his perfection and the holiness that we just sang about. Isaiah, for these precious few moments, is present visually, transported into the throne room. The train of God's robe is so huge, it fills the temple. Heaven and earth have merged And then Isaiah hears in verse 3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. God's purity and his perfection are terrifying. His glory is overwhelming. You know, Isaiah had always believed in God. But now God has become very real. The word glory in Hebrew literally means weight, heavy. And the reality of of God for Isaiah is now heavier than he'd ever imagined. Isaiah may have always believed, but he'd never really been shaken to his core. He'd never been re-engineered so that nothing but God matters. In some ways, it's very easy for us to believe in God, to fool ourselves, if you like, to fit him into our existing beliefs and plans and agendas. It's so easy to conceptualise God, to even to intellectualise or to have this idea, this abstract idea of God. And we believe in him because he can do something for us. And if we do that, we're not grasping his glory. And in effect, um, we see and experience him as lighter than we are, and we want to shape him around our lives. But not so for Isaiah. Isaiah is crushed uh, by the weight of God's glory. His life is about to give way to God. The things he believes in are shaken so dramatically His agenda and his plans will take a different direction and God's agenda will now become Isaiah's agenda. He'll live for and in the shadow of God's glory. And so the doorposts shake, the temple fills with smoke 
and in the presence of his holy, holy, holy God, Isaiah cries, Woe to me! I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Just imagine for a minute, we're plumbers and we're cleaning out sewerage pipes and the pipes burst and raw, and raw sewerage explodes all over us. So I'm sorry, it's probably a pretty horrible example on a Sunday morning. Um, I don't know if you remember that, if you remember Slum, Slumdogging um, a Millionaire, the movie, and there's this scene where the little guy flips into the, the toilet because he's trying to escape from those who are chasing him. That's the visual, and I have to turn away every time I watch that movie, but anyways, um, that's what happens. Um, excuse me. My technology has failed, so I have a backup. So, um, uh, But then in an instant, I guess what happens is, is when we're in the midst of all of that raw sewerage, um, we're transported, just like Isaiah, into this pristine, newly painted white bedroom. White walls, brand new perfect carpet, white linen sheets, a white doona, and there's white PJs ready to put on. And here we are, dripping with excrement, we smell, and we're not only aware of our uncleanness, but it's exponentially magnified by the cleanness that's all around us. What can we do? Where can we go? Where can we step? Isaiah, in the presence of our perfectly pure and radiant God, grasps that like those uh, that he'd been warning earlier in um, the chapters before, that he too is unclean and unworthy and it terrifies him. And so he cries out, woe to me, I'm ruined. But then remarkably and wonderfully in that state of hopelessness, uncleanness and sheer terror, it's actually God who makes the first move. There in verses 6 and 7, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. God showers Isaiah with his grace and he washes him clean. As that hot coal touches Isaiah's lips, Burning judgment becomes rescue and redemption, redeeming grace, forgiveness, restoration of honour, healing from the wounds, the scars of the wreckage of Isaiah's sins. And he provides Isaiah hope. And so then Isaiah, the broken man, um, hears the voice of the Lord saying in, in verse 8, Whom shall I send? And, whom will, and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, 
send me. Many years ago, I was, we had a mission dinner at our church. A guy by the name of Magnus Linder, who was, did something very similar to what I do now, was doing the same thing for OMF. And at the end of the night, our pastor interviewed Magnus and, Magnus and asked him whether there was something that he wanted to leave us with. He could have said anything he liked. But he left us with four very profound words, and they were, be surrendered to God. I've had the privilege to walk with lots of people as they've prepared to go on cross-cultural mission. Um, I've had um, the fun, the joy of working, the walking a few steps with Alon and Kerry and their children. I can assure you that most people do not go on mission because they feel guilty. Most, like Isaiah, are overwhelmed by God's goodness and his grace and overwhelmed that he's washed them clean Um, They've felt the weight and been shaken by God's glory and they want to share his message of hope and they want to surrender their life to him and do what the purpose, uh, his purpose is for them. And God's purpose for Isaiah, if you noted, is a tough one. There in verses 9 and 10, God said, Go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving, Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turned and be healed. You see, God has made up his mind that his people are to bear the judgment of their sin. It's a really hard message that God's commissioned Isaiah to teach. And it's designed to push Judah and the people of Israel further away from him. We get to the New Testament, we hear Jesus saying in John chapter 8, because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. And then Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. Devastating the truth that God has asked Isaiah to speak would not be popular. The truth would not be believed and the truth would, for many generations to come, be hidden. There's a couple called Tim and Debbie and they served in China for over 25 years. And about four or five years ago, unfortunately, um, with only a handful of, of believers after that 25 years, they were kicked out of China. And so how did they measure the success of their 25 years? Definitely not by numbers. They measured their success through faithfulness. Faithfulness to the place and to the people that God had led them. For Isaiah, for Tim and Debbie, for all of us, we're not called to success. We're called to faithfulness. And no matter what the outcome, fruit fruit from our ministries, fruit from our conversations, fruit from our evangelism, that's just up to God. We have to trust him. But still, Isaiah appeals to the Lord in verses 11 and 12, for how long, Lord, as we've sung this morning, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken it's devastating 
But the overwhelming message of Isaiah's prophecy, the plot and the narrative from those first words we read in Genesis to the last words we read in Revelation, goes something like this. Whilst God is perfectly just, he desperately desires to heal and save. And that desire to save is, from people, is for people from all nations. And so we have this wonderful poetic thread that you may or may not have picked up in chapter 13. In verse 13, sorry. Um, but as the terebinth and oak leaf stumps, when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Um, I guess all of us living in Australia over recent years and for many, for centuries really, um, know too well the devastation of bushfire. In seconds, raging flames wipe out bushland and communities and houses. But that charred smell of tree stumps and, um, that comes gradually disappears and it's replaced by small green buds. And like those green buds that quickly become shoots and become the source of a new growth on, a new growth on trees... God's holy seed will also rise to bring life, eternal life, to our dark and hurting world. Because we read in a couple more chapters in Isaiah 11, a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse, and from his roots a branch will bear fruit. And we know, as we read the New Testament, um, that that shoot from the stump, the seed of Jesse is the Lord Jesus. So what to do? How is this text relevant for us? Well, if we take no other message away this morning, it's just to affirm that our greatest need uh, is to be washed clean. In Isaiah's vision, the Lord commissioned seraphim to touch his lips with burning coals. For us, God the Father has commissioned his son, the shoot of the stump of Jesse, to become a man. And Jesus would experience the desolation that Judah experienced, separated from his father. But he was nailed to a cross, and he was nailed to a cross to absorb our uncleanliness of all of our sin. Christ crucified, intersecting with God's free and unmerited and embracing grace. But sadly, so many people in the world, in so many places, don't know where or how to find this life-giving shower of grace and hope. They remain lost and unclean, never to hear the words of the truth. And they don't even have a chance to reject the truth because they don't have anyone to tell them. They don't have anyone to tell them where to find this shower of grace. Four billion odd people in the world are either Muslim, Buddhist, Hindus, folk, they participate in folk religion or they say they have no religion. I was just reading some statistics lately that says... Over 10 million Aussies now say they don't have a religion. That's four people in 10 people. Four, ten, four people in 10 here in Australia say they don't have any religion. 
Over a billion people don't have the Bible in their own language. I go to my Bible app and there are 71 different English versions. Turkey has a population of 85.7 million people. 99.2% of them are unreached. So many perishing. And this is a moment in our history. It's a a snapshot. And it's a crisis. A few years ago, our national director um, visited Afghanistan. Before the Taliban came back in, we had three Aussies there in, in Afghanistan. One evening, he was sharing with them and he asked them a question. What if you were forced to leave? And one of the single women, woman, women with tears in her eyes replied, who'll tell the women in the prison I visit about Jesus? I can't leave. Sadly, she was forced to leave, but she's desperate to get back in there again. When we hear the voice of Isaiah say in, in, in verse 5, Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Do, do we hear ourselves? Because believe it or not, it's not just our culture that can become self-absorbed. We can easily fall into that trap as well. And so it's not until we grasp the sheer weightiness of God's glory that our agenda becomes God's agenda. It's not until then that we stand beside Isaiah in the presence of our holy, holy, holy God, owning that we are completely broken and that we too need to shower in his grace and be touched by his mercy and then gladly surrender ourselves and offer ourselves to him. Um, I don't know any of you here, only Kerry and Alon, I don't know what's going on in your lives. But perhaps God has been prompting you to take an extra role at church. Perhaps he's been prompting you to love someone that's unlovable um, in your community, a neighbour, a family member. Maybe he's just been prompting you to, when someone asks you tomorrow morning, what did you do at the weekend, just to share a little bit more about church. Perhaps he's moving you to greater extents than that. Maybe you're a school teacher and he's prompting you to maybe teach in a country like Cambodia or Bangladesh. Maybe he's asking you to teach English to Somali refugees in Ethiopia. Maybe there's not too many people who surf here, but maybe he's actually asking you to teach surfing to adventure travellers in Indonesia or business skills to prostitutes in India, or to sit under a tree and just commune with people in Togo or Chad or Arnhem Land. Or maybe he's just asking you to to devote yourself to prayer each day for a friend, for a neighbour, for an unreached people group. About five or six years ago, I was at a conference and I was prompted to pray for six unreached people unreached peoples every week so on Mondays I pray for Afghanistan 
On Tuesdays, I pray for Somalia. On Wednesdays, I pray for the Maldives. On Thursdays, I pray for Morocco. On Friday, I pray for Yemen. And on Saturday, I pray for Japan. Would you be willing to do that too? When we wake up in the morning, till the time our eyes finally go to sleep on the pillow each night, are we surrendered to God? Do we feel the weight of his glory on our lives? Are we wholeheartedly following Jesus? In the words of John Calvin, for until men and women recognise that they owe everything to God, that they are nourished by his fatherly care, that he is the author of every good, that they should seek nothing beyond him, They will never yield willing service. No, unless they establish their complete happiness in him. They will never give themselves truly and sincerely to him. Like Isaiah, do we hear those words? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Let me pray. Our loving Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for the prophet Isaiah. Thank you for the way in which you used him to share a difficult message to his people. In some ways, I wonder if our culture, if our situation is too different. I wonder if prosperity has brought contempt for you. I pray, Father, that through these words we might be prompted to be courageous that we might be prompted to feel the weight of your glory on our lives and surrender ourselves to you and I pray Father that we might be willing to serve you in whatever way you've got planned for us to bring you glory for the sake of our Lord Jesus and we pray in his name. Amen.